Thanks be to God. Good morning, friends. Good to see you. Thanks for joining us for this most um, special day of worship. If you're visiting, thanks for being here. My name is Matt. We're, we're happy to have you. He is risen. Amen. I've shared this before, but there is something I have really grown to love about living in the Midwest. I, I've actually spent most of my life living in this part of the country. Uh, aside from three years I spent working in Alaska seasonally, so just four to five months a year, and then one summer spent working in the heat of Atlanta, Georgia, so sort of opposite extremes. Aside from those two experiences, this part of the country has been my home. And over the years, I've really grown to appreciate the seasonal changes we enjoy in the Midwest. And I find those seasonal changes particularly meaningful when they sort of mirror the Christian story in a way, which is sort of what happens for us in this part of the country uh, around this time of year, every spring, we witness what I really believe is a, a miraculous transformation in nature um, where plants, flowers, leaves on trees, life that has been dormant for months appears once again in all of its brilliant vitality. It, it really is remarkable if we can slow down long enough to notice it. And I don't know, maybe the fact that I am finding Increasing levels of joy in such a simple pleasure is just an indication that I am quickly aging. And before you know it, I will be a bona fide bird watcher. And if that is my lot in life, that is fine. I willingly accept that plight. But every year, we have this visible reminder of the return of life in nature. Life even in unexpected places. At, at our house, we have a pretty big backyard, so big that unfortunately the back third of the yard doesn't get much TLC throughout the year. I am just not willing to maintain the entirety of the yard. So every fall, we gather the leaves from the front two thirds of the yard and relocate them to the back third of the yard. Well. And maybe this is, you're beginning to judge me um, for my laziness, but last fall we also spent a lot of time dividing dozens and dozens of irises and giving some away, planting some in new places. But unbeknownst to us, while we were dividing them, apparently we dropped a lot of those bulbs um, and this spring discovered that we had unintentionally relocated those to the back third of our yard when we gathered leaves because a couple of weeks ago, out of nowhere, in that giant pile of relocated but decomposing leaves, dozens of irises started to peek through. It was, again, a simple pleasure, but a beautiful picture of life in unexpected places, life in unexpected places, reminded me of what we celebrate today, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. As, as we've read that story from John's gospel, it, it certainly does make us think of life in unexpected places. And as Christians, we, you know, we believe that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not just a sort of magical but ultimately unbelievable end to a fascinating story 
about a Palestinian man named Jesus in the first century, as though the story that the gospel authors had been telling ends in his death, but because that kind of seems like an anticlimactic end to the story, especially with all of the details they've included about who this man claims to be and what he claims to be doing, they decide, well, we can't end the story with his gruesome death on a cross, and I have a bug that just landed on me. Oh, boy. We saw that bug a moment. This is going off the rails quickly. We saw that bug a moment ago, and Nathan said it was going to be attracted to my pants, and I fear that you put this evil on me, Nathan. What were we talking about? Yeah, so he is risen. risen. Have a good day. So it's not as though the gospel authors say, we can't end this wonderful story with his gruesome death on a cross. So I know this seems really unrealistic, but let's create this myth where he comes back to life because this is a story that needs a happy ending. Now, we believe, and it seems unbelievable, but we believe that this is much more than a dramatic, albeit fictional, end to a story. This is something altogether different than an endearing fairy tale that teaches important lessons. As Christians, we believe this is the pivotal moment in human history where the new world has begun. Our prayers have referenced this. The songs that we sing together reference this. In his book, The Everlasting Man, G.K. Chesterton put it this way. He said, on the third day, the friends of Christ, coming at daybreak to the place, found the grave empty, and the stone rolled away. In varying ways, they realized the new wonder, but even they hardly realized that the world had died in the night. The world had died in the night. What they were looking at was the first day of a new creation with a new heaven and a new earth. And in a semblance of a gardener, God walked again in the garden, in the cool, not of the evening, but the dawn. Beautiful summation. First day of a new creation. Life in unexpected places. From the women who first find the empty tomb to the men that they later proclaim this news to. Everybody involved is astonished at this reality. Life in unexpected places. In John's gospel that we read a moment ago, we saw Mary Magdalene lingering at the empty tomb, expressing her grief, her disbelief, and what do we find? We find the resurrected Jesus himself appearing to her, and she simply assumes, well, this must be the gardener. Who else could it be? It's early in the morning, Jesus is dead, and Of course, as N.T. Wright has noted, that confusion on her part actually beautifully depicts who God is and what God is doing in the resurrection. He is a gardener tending to this new reality. The new day has gone. It's a wild event that leads to excitement, Confusion, disbelief. We find the wide spectrum of human emotion displayed in this story, but 
Perhaps even more than that, we find some of the serious conditions we find ourselves in as human beings represented and accounted for in this story. I want to read Luke's telling of these events. In chapter 24, we're going to read through quite a bit of it, beginning in verse 1. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel, and as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. So we read a part of John's telling of some of these events, and now Luke's, but we find whichever gospel account we focus on, one thing that remains consistent is some of the variety expressed. Variety in terms of the individuals who discover this bizarre, unexpected news. Variety in terms of the emotions felt and acknowledged, maybe even competing emotions. I think we find that is the case. And I get that because this story is so familiar, it can be very easy for us to sanitize it to the point where we miss out on some of the gritty, earthy, even messy mix of emotions taking place. Because each individual is bringing their their own baggage, bringing their own experiences, their own failures, their own fears and unique needs. And I want to suggest this morning, and I know that it is going to sound incredibly cliche, but I I believe it to be true. Each of these individuals bringing all of their unique needs and experiences and failures to this moment, and I believe that the resurrection is the answer to it all. Not necessarily an easy answer, Not an answer that removes all difficulty or all doubt in the present, but an answer nonetheless. The resurrection of Jesus offers a hopeful answer to some of the most disturbing realities of our human experience. Offering an an answer to both our suffering and pain and our sin and shame. Every year in the weeks leading to Easter, um, as a personal act of my devotion, I I revisit the incredible poem by Wendell Berry entitled Manifesto, The Mad Farmer Liberation Front. 
I, I know I've read sections of this poem at times in the past, so I'm not going to recite it all. And it's not explicitly referencing the resurrection of Jesus, but there are a few statements in particular that for me personally just sort of light a fire under me and, and renew my sense of joy delight and celebration in the resurrection. One of those occurs at the end of the poem where Barry invites the reader to practice resurrection, to practice resurrection. But throughout, from beginning to end, I think one of the reasons the poem is so moving to me is that it doesn't gloss over pain, sorrow, and other really difficult realities of life. It acknowledges it all, brings it all to the forefront of our thoughts, and then at one point, Barry writes this, be joyful, though you have considered all the facts. Joyful, despite the facts. It's not a brushing the facts under the rug or glossing over them or trying to forget that difficulty. Be joyful, though you have considered all the facts. How, we might protest, with restless indignation. Well, again, it sounds trite, but as I approach it, I do believe that this event that we celebrate this morning is the reason that we can have joy, though we have considered the facts. This great reversal that brings God's future into the present and invites us into that future. Like the women that Matthew describes as being afraid yet filled with joy, joyful despite the facts. Afraid yet filled with joy. That will likely be where we find ourselves often in life's journey. Afraid yet we find joy at the resurrection of Jesus able to live into that reality and bear witness to it. We cling to hope that it is the answer to all that ails our world and us individually. I believe that God's resurrection power changes everything. If resurrection is more than a metaphor, but a reality, I believe it changes everything. I think it changes everything on a cosmic scale. This is sort of what the Apostle Paul seems to focus on often. I think it also changes everything for us personally. If it is more than a metaphor, it is the source of unending hope. And not merely an escapist hope, where we hope to be vacuumed out of this place. No, a robust hope. Today, it is possible to rejoice, though we have considered the facts. This suffering, this moment of shame, is not the end of the story. However bad it gets, the worst that it could possibly get, it is not the end of the story. My sin, instances where I have harmed others, Instances where I have been sinned against, those are not the end of the story. We profess today that God has overcome sin and death. Life 
has invaded our world and our lives. This is how N.T. Wright put it. Easter was when hope in person surprised the whole world by coming forward from the future into the present. Hope in person. Paul sums up some of this meaning of the resurrection for those who follow in Ephesians chapter 2. He said this, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts like the rest we were by nature deserving of wrath. You know, looking at our own brokenness, our own sin especially is not a comfortable exercise, at least not for me. Maybe you are more mature than I am, but it is, it is not a comfortable exercise for me, especially as I have so often been shaped by a culture that teaches me to avoid looking at or admitting my own fault. I mean, I can see death, decay, and transgression in others all day long, but that's them, right? That's not me. I, I resign myself to seeing, when, when I come face-to-face -face with that in my life, well, this is just who I am. But Paul provides a very stark picture. We were dead in trespasses and sins, he says. This is the human condition, death. This is seen, of course, in the natural world in one of the most demoralizing parts of our human experience. To live, to experience birth, is to begin traveling down the road which leads to death for all of us. You, you can completely alter your lifestyle. You can change your diet, which is probably good for many of us. You can exercise your body daily. You can even take a nightly bath in essential oils, and it's not going to prevent death. It is coming for all of us. But Paul takes it a step further, arguing that while, yes, of course, we are all going to die physically, but spiritual death is also something we all experience. Our Lenten journey over the past 40 days has been a somber reminder of our sin. Not only do we see the effects of sin everywhere out there, but if I slow down, I see it most notably in here. Now, these twin realities, physical death, the death that our sin leads to, it's a discovery that can leave us questioning everything we thought we knew, questioning everything about God, about others, even about ourselves. It is a stark reality which can cause us to feel that sense of forsakenness that Jesus seemed to feel on the cross when he asked the Father, why does it seem like you have forsaken me? Of course, the event we celebrate this morning is a reminder that he was not forsaken. And as the late author Madeline Langle wonderfully put it, Easter is always the answer to my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? This is the answer. It is the answer to our questions, our 
doubts, our fears, not that it eradicates them, but it does provide hope in the midst of them. It is the answer to our sin, all that is wrong in our lives and in the world at large. Death, whether physical or spiritual, doesn't have the final say. Suffering, pain, and grief, they are undeniable parts of life in this world. And you know, this most beautiful, hope-filled story of resurrection is actually a story that begins in that place of suffering, pain, and grief. Not only the physical and psychological suffering that Jesus himself endured that ultimately leads to his death, but also the grief that we see the women in this story express. Luke has told us about the women approaching the tomb early on Sunday morning, spices in hand. This is a part of their grieving and mourning process. These women have lost a dear friend. Their hearts are broken. They are perplexed, troubled, afraid. And then in an unexpected moment, the good news of resurrection, we see their sorrow begin to give way to joy. Joy despite the facts. So we could think of the women that Luke tells us about. We might also take our minds to the shame that Peter must be carrying to the tomb that morning as he stoops to peer in. The failure of his denial just a few days before must have complicated any hope or nascent joy he was beginning to experience. And perhaps you find yourself in a similar position today. Maybe similar to the women described in this story. Maybe similar to that of Peter. Maybe you too are burdened by grief. Burdened by suffering. Burdened by pain. Or maybe your awareness of your own sin has felt overwhelming you. You know, I have a really troubled past. My life is a mess. I have all of these various issues that are difficult to reconcile. The good news of the resurrection is that it is precisely in those moments of brokenness, despair, and failure that the reality of God's resurrection power reaches into our pit and rescues us, offering new life in the most unexpected places. So so we didn't finish reading that section from Ephesians because we stopped with a lot of bad news. So I think this morning it's appropriate for us to get to the good news. Ephesians in, in verse four, but because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus." 
For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So Paul reconciles all of that really difficult news that he began with by insisting, making sure we know this most beautiful truth, that God has made us alive with Christ, has raised us up with Jesus Christ. We were dead. We do things that lead to death. We face brokenness and suffering that a lot of times feel like death. We endure grief in the face of actual physical death and in the midst of it all, in the midst of it all, each of those devastating realities, God has looked upon us with mercy and raised us up with Christ, saved us by grace. Thanks be to God. You know, though the fullness of the kingdom of God is something we anticipate in the future, In the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we discover that those realities are not exclusively limited to the future, but are present realities being brought into this day. Present realities we can enter, we can taste even now. No longer is the kingdom of God limited to mere speculation or theory. In the resurrection of Jesus, we find a visible representation of God's victory. We have the assurance in Jesus that God has overcome death, that he rules in victory over injustice, over sorrow, over despair, grief, pain, and our sin. This is how N.T. Wright put it in Surprised by Joy. I'm sorry, surprised by hope. He said this, and this is the point where believing in the resurrection of Jesus suddenly ceases to be a matter of inquiring about an odd event in the first century and becomes a matter of rediscovering hope in the 21st century. We are hopeful because Christ is victorious. Christ is victorious. My hope and prayer for each of us today, for each of you, for myself, because I also bring baggage into this place. My hope for all of us is that whatever we have brought into this room this morning, whatever is weighing us down, it is as varied as we are unique. Whatever pain or grief you are feeling in this moment, whatever sin or shame Whatever brokenness you have brought into this place, I believe that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the answer. And my prayer for you is that you would leave this place with a renewed sense of hope, with a renewed sense of joy, though you have considered all the facts, though hope and joy seem to be the furthest thing from your frame of mind. My hope, is that the event we celebrate recalibrates us, reorients us into a posture of hope and joy because death, grief, sin, and shame is not the end of the story. 
Christ is alive. The kingdom is here. Christ is alive. God has made us alive together with Christ. We can rejoice, though we have considered the facts. Would you stand this morning as we celebrate this new life that we are invited into at the table of our Lord? We do so by gathering around the body and blood of our Lord who sacrificed on our behalf. But again, that was not the end of his story because God has overcome sin and death. God is victorious. Thanks be to God. We're going to celebrate around the table of our Lord. I want to offer a prayer before we do that. Lord Jesus, we gather around this, your table, partaking in these holy gifts, the memorial your son commanded us to make. We remember his blessed passion, his precious death, and most notably today, his mighty resurrection, his glorious ascension, and his promise to come again. We remember, Jesus, how on the night you were betrayed, you took bread and the cup. You blessed them. You broke the bread and gave it to your disciples, saying, take, eat. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. We welcome you, risen Christ, into this moment. And we remember how on the night you were betrayed, you took the cup also. And when you had given thanks, you gave it to your disciples, saying, drink this, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. We welcome you risen Christ. We're going to make two lines down these two center aisles. When you reach the front, you can take the elements on your own. You'll hear these words spoken over you, the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. Take them in remembrance that Christ has died for you and feed on him in your hearts by faith with thanksgiving. Almighty God, who through your only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, overcame death and opened us to the gate of everlasting life, grant that we who celebrate with joy the day of the Lord's resurrection may by your life-giving Spirit be delivered from sin and raised from death. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Before you join us at the table, I'm going to be available at the back. If anybody has a need that you would like me to pray for, I would love to pray for you. If you are 
interested in the life that I have been talking about, the life that Jesus opens us up to. I'd love to chat with you and to pray for you as well, but let's join together at the table of our Lord and celebrate his death and his mighty resurrection. Thanks be to God.